0: Hello, and welcome to the episode, The Showdown. In the last few years, I've made my way up to the Golan Heights on the northeastern border of Israel and Syria many times. As a matter of fact, most of the times I've been up there, I was up there with tour groups wanting to see the border, wanting to understand the previous wars fought on the Golan Heights with the Syrian army between Syria and Israel, such as the 1967 Six-Day War and the 1973 Yom Kippur War. But since the ceasefire between Israel and Syria after the Yom Kippur War, this border between Israel and Syria has been extremely quiet, uh, actually until the last five years. In the last five years, the fighting was all in Syria, with an occasional dropping in Israel itself on the border, creating little damage, and Israel retaliating every single time. But the fighting really is in Syria between the different Syrian factions. And if you even remotely follow the news, you've read about this in the last few years. Um, Just to remind you, the Syrian army headed by President Assad, or so he calls himself, not much of an army by the way, is aided by the Iranian Shiite uh, power, together with the Hezbollah, which is in our book a terrorist Shiite organization, and those three are aided by the Russians. On the other side stand the very extreme Sunni Muslim factions, such as Al-Qaeda in different names, and also ISIS as you well know it, but also Uh, The world calls them moderate Muslims. I would more call them pragmatic Muslims more than moderate, but those are Sunni factions fighting the Shiites, which once again is Assad, the Hezbollah, Iran, aided by Russia. Now, in the last week, which is the second week of October 2016, um, if you're up on the Golan Heights, you will hear a tremendous amount of fighting. You'll also hear airplanes flying over um, and all kinds of other warlike sounds. Some of the heaviest fighting in the last five years are now occurring in Syria. So, one would ask, why has the fighting increased so much now? And the answer probably is because the Syrian regime has figured out what they think is a successful formula of perhaps being able to defeat those Sunni rebels, uh, pragmatic uh, and extremists. Um, The example for this is given in a town called Daria, which is just uh, outside of Damascus, where the Syrian regime has been basically uh, putting that city under siege for the last three years. In those three years, the idea was to not only bomb and fight the, the city, but also to starve out the population. Thousands of Sunni Muslims in that city starved to death, to the point where last August there was a decision made by the Sunni fighters to give in and to be able to allocate locate themselves into a different area, and uh, allow the civilians, those that survived, to actually get some uh, some aid. This giving in was actually facilitated by the United Nations. And indeed, there was some aid given in the population, hopefully, because we still don't know what the future is, uh, what the future entails. Hopefully, we'll be able to get some aid. Now, for the Assad regime, this turned out to be a formula of success. And you see this happening in other areas where the Assad army together, once again, with the Hezbollah and the Iranian forces aided by the Russians, are putting cities under siege in the attempt to not only starve out populations, but actually to hit civilian population, where the United Nations perhaps would again get involved, and again, they would be able to take over those areas. The best example of that is what's happening right now in Aleppo. Once again, if you've read the news in the last few days, the Aleppo community, both civilian and fighters, are being demolished by bombings of Assad's army and even the Russians. Civilian homes, uh, schools, and hospitals are being bombed constantly, and it seems as if the Shiite access uh, headed by Assad is not taking any prisoners or any survivors. Now, For many people around the globe that uh, read the news of Syria, this conflict seems to be local, very chaotic, and not really a lot to be able to be done about it. Having said that, I actually want to suggest that uh, this is becoming a global conflict. Um, It was very clear in the last uh, few days, once again October 2016, that the showdown has begun between two of the strongest nations in the world, the United States and Russia. Ironically, this started on a good note. Um, Secretary of State John Kerry, in talks with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, reached uh, an agreement on a ceasefire that uh, at least would minimize uh, the, the death toll and the fighting in general. The date was set for September 13th 2016 and specifically did not include fighting al-Qaeda or ISIS. On September 17th, four days after the ceasefire, the United States mistakenly used its airplanes wanting to attack an ISIS group and once again mistakenly hit the Syrian army, which killed 60 to 80 Syrian soldiers. The Syrian President Assad, who never really wanted a ceasefire to begin with, immediately called out the ceasefire and immediately started an attacks on Aleppo. One of these attacks, most likely orchestrated by Russian airplanes, took place against a, a UN convoy, killing at least 18 UN aid workers, unloading food from their trucks. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, Term this a war crime. The United States also called this a war crime and there were voices in the United States that were actually calling for intervention in Syria and even against Russia. At this point, the Russians did not take this lightly and took several measures they hoped would deter the United States from any kind of military intervention or other kind of intervention, diplomatic or otherwise. So, diplomatically, the Russians put a stop to a plutonium reduction Agreement that was actually made in the year 2000. Technically, militarily, they started moving in um, rockets, um, S 300s and S 400s, that, uh, c- that could shoot down airplanes overhead or incoming missiles. Russian Major Igor Kanchyakov who is the military spokesman for the defense forces of Russia, had said that the S-300 manned by his Russian troops would not be able to tell which airplanes were which. Of course, that was a very strong hint to the United States that they could shoot down American uh, American airplanes. Pentagon spokesman Peter Cook replied by saying that the communication with Russia actually works very well in order to make sure that no uh, American airplanes are being shot down. But he said, and I quote, we leave it to the Russians to participate in whatever they see fit. Which was anything but a subtle hint to the Russians that America wouldn't just stand idly by if its troops are being attacked in any way. To make a long story short, and for those of you that remember the Cold War, this was uh, Cold War rhetorics, this was threats by both countries, and like I said, turning much more into a global event and less and less a regional chaotic conflict. So now it's time for some context. Um, I remember that the last time there was a showdown, such a huge showdown, between the United States and Russia was when Russia was then called the Soviet Union. This was in 1982. As a matter of fact, during the month of June of 1982. Now, I remember that I was uh, visiting family in northern Israel that lived on the Lebanese border, and there was a tremendous amount of Israeli military on the border of Lebanon. Planes were flying overhead all the time, and you can tell that something big was happening. A year earlier, in April of 1981, there was an aerial conflict over the skies of Lebanon between Israel and Syria, resulting in Israel knocking down two Syrian uh, fighter helicopters. The Syrians reacted to that by placing SAM-6 missile batteries in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon that would be able to perhaps knock down Israeli jet fighters. Israel, being very concerned with these uh, sand batteries, decided it would hold an operation that would uh, take out the batteries. Um, And Menachem Begin, who was the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, was determined to uh, carry this through. Now, at the time, the United States was aware and somewhat afraid that this local conflict between Israel and Syria could lead to a greater conflict between themselves and the Soviet Union. And Menachem Begin, the Israeli Prime Minister, was pressured by the United States not to carry out the operation, and Begin complied. So the United States also sent over a mediator, whose name was Philip Habib, in order to try to uh, take out the SAM missiles from the Beka Valley, and it failed. The Syrians uh, actually refused to do so. Needless to say, the Syrians were allied strongly with the Soviet Union, while Israel was allied with the United States. At this time, Israel and the PLO, which stands for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, were battling as well. And the PLO headquarters and many of their fighters were stationed in Lebanon. Um, Their tactic was to fire rockets into Israel, and hence disturbing Israeli life all the time. Israel looked for an opportunity to be able to invade Lebanon and to stop the rocket fire and deal with the PLO. And that uh, opportunity, if you want, came when uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom was uh, assassinated, or actually it was an attempt assassination on his life. He was critically injured, became brain damaged and died uh, years later. So on June 6, 1982, the Israeli army rolled into Lebanon under the pretense of fighting the Palestinian Liberation Organization and distancing it from the border with Israel, and of course distancing the rocket fire um, from Israel in order so that they would not be able to hit Israeli territory. So the war did take place against the PLO. And I, too, incidentally, was in this war a little later on and actually spent uh, almost three entire years in Lebanon. Um, And the Syrians were warned to stay out of it, but it was very clear that the Syrians probably would not be able to stay out of it since they had their troops in eastern Lebanon. Israel had superior fighting forces, a regular army, um, tanks, artillery, foot soldiers, of course. But perhaps the biggest uh, strength of Israel was its Air Force that was able to not only clear the way, but to pinpoint and strategically destroy those that need to be destroyed and trying to not hit civilians and others. But the challenge to the Air Force were these SAM-6 missile batteries. At this point in June, there were already about 30 missile batteries that were placed in the Bekaa Valley in eastern Lebanon that once again could shoot down Israeli airplanes. Israel Air Force carried out uh, an operation that was named Mole Cricket 19. 19 was the number of batteries that we thought we would attack and hit and destroy. Um, And again, there was a question mark of whether it would be successful at that or not. There was a question mark of how many of our airplanes would suffer consequences of being shot down. All this was uh, in a fog. Although some were very convinced that this would be a successful operation. The Air Force used American-made technology and technology American-made, but improvised by the Israeli Air Force in order to do two major things. One was to jam the radars of the Syrians, both the missile sites and also of the, radars, the Syrian radars that could track down our airplanes in the air. And the other, of course, is to use different kinds of missiles in order to take out the missile batteries or any enemy aircrafts that would be looking for what is called an aerial battle, which is called a dogfight. There were two waves of Israeli jets that scrambled over the Becca Valley. The first wave consisted of 96 F-15s and F-16s, and then the second waves had about 92 airplanes, jet fighters of all kinds. At first, the Syrians ordered their MiG-made, Soviet-made airplanes to retreat and land at base, thinking the missiles would be effective against the airplanes. Once they realized that their SAM missiles were being knocked out pretty quickly, They scrambled their jets into the air in order to meet the Israeli planes and to shoot them down. The Syrian planes were depending on their ground radars to be able to locate the Israeli planes, while the Israeli planes actually had other planes that were radar planes called Skyhawks that uh, would show us the Syrian planes while in the air. As a matter of fact, the technology, once again, American-made technology, was so superior to the Soviet-made technology that was being used by the Syrians that the Israeli planes were able to jam the radars of the Syrians. They were also able to shoot down the Syrian airplanes while the Syrian airplanes couldn't even see them. The Syrian airplanes, again, the Russian-made, Soviet-made airplanes flown by the Syrian pilots, had radars in the front of the plane, had radars in the back of the plane, had nothing on the side. And when Israel came from the side and shot missiles at the side, from about a distance of 35 kilometers away, once again, the Syrian airplanes couldn't even see them. At the end of almost three days of battle, there were about 100, almost 100, Syrian airplanes knocked out of the sky, while Israel had zero losses of planes. 30 SAM missile batteries on the ground were completely destroyed, this was a fiasco for the Syrians, as well as the Soviets and their technology. And for Israel and the United States, this was a proof that technology and manpower and training was far superior. This was the biggest aerial battle since World War II. And I just want to emphasize or reemphasize that while the Syrians lost almost 100 planes, the Israelis or the American-made airplanes, none were shot down. There's no doubt that the leadership of the Soviet Union and the leadership the military leadership of the Soviet Union took a very close look at what had happened in the skies of Lebanon in the biggest showdown between the United States and themselves that is the technological showdown. There's also no doubt that they realized how primitive their technology was to the American technology. 10 years later in 1992 Major General David Ivry who was one of the Israeli pilots that participated in the 1982 air battle and later on became the commander of the Israeli Air Force, heard from his counterpart in the Czech Republic, who in 1982 was studying at the Defense College of Moscow, that the aerial battle over the skies of Lebanon convinced the Soviets without any doubt that they were so far beyond technology that basically they had lost the arms race. Now, to understand, the Soviet government was spending nearly 50% of its annual budget on defense or on military. The United States, at the same time, in the 1980s, was spending only 9% of its budget on military, and the Soviet Union not only had uh, primitive technology compared to the United States, but also was going bankrupt. While the United States elected Ronald Reagan to office in the early 80s, he upped the uh, budget of the military by 2 to 3% more, in which case the Soviets was, were literally blown out of the water. Now, the Soviets had also encountered in the early 80s the war in Afghanistan, and they were going bankrupt. And this aerial battle had proved to them that not only did they lose the arms race, but basically they had lost the United States in the biggest showdown of the 1980s and in the biggest showdown of the Cold War. In 1987, only five years after the aerial battle over the skies of Lebanon, Mikhail Gorbachev, the president of the Soviet Union, announced Glasnost, which essentially would lead to the breakdown of the Soviet Union, the falling of the Iron Curtain, and the restructuring of that area, the area of the Soviet Union, into many different nation states. Since then, Russia has been in political turmoil, um, attempting a at democracy which perhaps one day will be a success, and the current president, President Putin, has made it very clear that he is once again a strong man and that Russia is a strong contender in world politics. While he's probably right about Russia being a strong contender in world politics, uh, the Middle East is a little different. And once again, to bring you back to the Golan Heights and watching over some of the fighting in Syria, the situation today is vastly different, and yet it is once again a showdown between the United States and Russia. The question for Israel is, how do we now participate in this whole role of the Middle East? It is clear, I think, to many politicians in Israel, definitely to the military of Israel, and the majority of society in Israel that the last thing that Israel would want to do is involve itself, uh, interfere, call it what you want, into this crazy politics of tribal warfare, religious warfare, territorial warfare going on in Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, and other such nations. As a matter of fact, Israel, and this may sound very brutal, says, we wish luck to both sides. What we really mean by that is as long as they are occupied at fighting one another, and yes, we do feel a tremendous amount of sorrow for innocent people being killed. As a matter of fact, Israel's opened up emergency hospitals in the Golan Heights, treating those that can make it across the border that are mortally injured. And yet, we still do not want them to turn their attention on us. In other words, let them fight it out as they have for the last 1,300 years between the Sudanese and the Shiites, and not get involved. That is Israeli policy. We do not want to get involved. What's interesting is that the American policy, on the one hand, also uh, calls for non-involvement. Definitely no troops on the ground, which would be a huge recruiting method for many of the extreme groups against the West. But, since the United States is the leader of the free world, they don't have the privilege of staying out of it. They need to, sh- to, to look for a solution, a ceasefire, even if there isn't a solution, what they really need to look for is a some way to minimize the casualties taking place all over the Middle East and specifically in Syria. The only real power in Syria that can somehow control the Shiite access um, and can bring some kind of ceasefire into being, even though it could be a very uh, fragile ceasefire, is Russia. And I am not at all um, afraid of the rhetoric going back between the United States and Russia. I do not think for one second that Russia wants to engage the United States in any kind of warfare because it knows it will not last. Um, I do, however, know that the Russians having a huge sway over Syria, over Iran, over the Hezbollah and others is really the only partner of the United States in order to try to create some kind of, once again, a ceasefire or some kind of minimal or minimizing of the killing. In that case, what I do see going forward is once again more attempts at discussions, more attempts at dialogue between the United States and Russia, in an attempt to lower the flames in an everlasting war. Unlike the nineteen eighties, Israel will not be playing a role in the showdown between the United States and Russia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to San and Silicon and rate us on iTunes. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Itai Tours or visit our website, itaitours.com.